what occurred to me was that for the first time in a long time, maybe forever, there was this monstrously huge constituency had just been created overnight, the 48%. And nobody knew they were the, one of the 48%, or indeed the 52%, the day before. Hello and welcome to Confessions. I'm Giles Fraser. This is the podcast where I'm joined by an interesting and well-known guest to find out where their underlying values come from, to find out what it is that makes them tick. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Matt Kelly, who's the editor of The New European and so much else besides. Um, great to have you here, mate. Thank you. Honestly, um, I'm thrilled to be here. The elephant in the room is you and I are going to disagree vehemently about... Let's not talk about... Should we not do it at don't all? Don't talk about the B word. Let's see, how, let's see how far we get out without let's, mentioning the B word. Let's see how far we get before we get to Brexit. Um, uh, Matt was uh, very kind. I'll say this up front. And uh, I, we've never met before. But yeah. um, when I finished at The Guardian, you phoned me up and said, come and, um, come and write for the New European for a bit. And yeah. I was like terrified <laughs> to do that. Well, you mulled it over and I thought, oh, maybe there's a chance. And then you, then you yeah. broke the bad news to me. Yeah, yeah. well, I just, I just didn't want to be Mr. Hate figure. Yeah, no, you know? I get it. I get it. I get it. You're forgiven. <laughs> so how we start with this, Matt, is we talk about, it's about you and about your values and about where they come from and all of that sort of stuff. So perhaps you'd describe for us just a bit, you know, where you come from, yeah. family, background, yeah. all that sort of stuff. So I come from Liverpool, and yeah. uh, my mum and dad were both journalists, are both journalists, both still alive. Oh, okay. My dad's uh, 84 now, I think. My mum's 77 or something like that, but both in nice, robust health. And, yeah, we I guess I grew up a fairly sort of standard middle-class Merseyside life. It was going. Th- I was growing up in the 70s, which obviously was like a really bad time for... For Liverpool, but of course, when you're in it, you don't really. How old are you? I'm 49 okay, now. Right, yeah. Right, right, yeah. So, so uh, yeah, I was born in 1969, right. and um, I, I, so I was I was pretty aimless at school. I was cle- I was clever. I knew that, so I got into a good school. But then I had real trouble concentrating, and I was not what I would call academic. At Were you school. a bit of a lad? No. Do you know what? I wasn't really. Okay. I was a bit kind of. Um, I guess I was a bit sort of shy uh, and and wasn't... I mean, people now will say how gregarious I am, which is which is really nice, but I was painfully shy as a kid. Right? You know, I mean, I would, I would hate going into a room for, for full of people I didn't know, you know, I mean, right. acutely, uh, acutely shy about that. But my dad and my mum were both kind of very open social people. So we had loads of people coming in and out of the house. Uh, we had great friendships with people like Anthony Bevins, who older people will remember as a great political journalist, total kind of rebel. And because my dad was uh, a sports editor on the Football Echo at one point, uh-huh. so we had loads of football people coming in and out, including Kevin Keegan and Tommy Smith. And, all of and these you're a Liverpool fan. And I'm a Liverpool fan. So in a way, it kind of... It, it, I mean, of course, your childhood always feels normal, but looking back, it was it was a really great childhood. You know, it's uh, Kevin Keegan babysat for me once. You know? <laughs> Yeah. So if anyone's ever asked enough to get my to get me to write an autobiography, it's going to be called Kevin Keegan was my babysitter. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he, he called in one afternoon on the way home just to say hello to my mum and dad, and they because we were sick, I was sick, and so my mum and dad said, "Can we just nip out to where we we're meant to be going for dinner, just to pop in? Can you look after the kids?" And he was uh, yeah. uh, That was the time when oh, he yeah. was. Oh no! So he was. Yeah, I mean, he was at the peak of his career, and I've got this very vivid memory of Kevin sitting with all the hair, sitting on a bar stool in our kitchen while me and Danny, my brother, played on the lino. Beneath, <laughs> that's while he read the paper. outstanding. So, so that you can good. only be a Liverpool fan. I am a Liverpool fan. Do you go? 
I, I used to go when I was up in Merseyside, but I haven't been so much. And I fell out of love with football a little bit uh, about four or five years ago. I just thought, I mean, it was coinciding with some poor performances from Liverpool, so maybe it's just fickleness. But um, And I, I, I used to have uh, season tickets at Arsenal because I live very near the Arsenal okay. stadium and my kids are Arsenal fans. Oh, so I used to take them, but then they had a couple of lousy seasons. So in truth, I haven't been to a football match for a couple of years, but... Yeah. I must say I'm thoroughly enjoying the uh, Klopp revolution. It's yeah, good. yeah, yeah, yeah. You're doing yeah. well. Yeah. Damn you. Yeah. yeah. Are, you, you're not, are you an Evertonian? No, 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 no. no I'm a no. big Chelsea fan. Oh, are you? Okay. Yeah, yeah no, right, like fine. overweight, bald, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's just I don't, I don't <laughs> yeah. fit there. <laughs> yeah. Now, listen, and so your parents, were they lefties? Was that, yes, was that there? Yes, very much. So my grandfather uh, on my dad's side was a socialist mayor of Bootle during, during World War II. Uh, and in fact, he had the nickname the Tin Hat Mayor because it was during the blit. Bootle was really badly blitzed and... And Joseph Sylvester Kelly would go out and, and dig people out in his Mac and his tin hat. And the, the Bootle Times wrote this wonderful tribute to him uh, as a leader column when he retired. Hats off to the mayor, you know. And he was basically saying, you know, there have been more wealthy men, men of greater lineage and standing, but none will stand comparison with Joseph Sylvester Kelly. You know? Wow. Yeah, and so I still look at that and I kind of feel... Wow, you know that's what it means to be. Was there? A, did, did your family come from Ireland at some point? Yeah, so I think it's yeah. Funnily enough, I'm just looking at the genealogy. One of my uncles did a went quite far back into the early 1800s, and yeah, they're all from Cork, County Cork, I think, and, and Clare, uh, and they came over five or six generations ago. And yeah, so it's got that kind of Irish Celtic lineage. Yeah. My great my great uncle Sam. I'm writing a book about it. My great uncle Sam was the. Um, was at the uh, at the synagogue in um, in Princess Road oh, wow. in uh, Toxter for oh, forty years. It amazing. was like he was the amazing. That was that was that was my background. So I had yeah. that connection yeah, yeah, with. Yeah. Well, I remember, of course, the riots in Toxter. You know, being it's hard to it's hard to look back and remember what Toxter was like uh, because you go there now and it's really you know a, a prime piece of of uh, Liverpool's uh, real estate because they've got these wonderful wonderful houses which were all owned by shipbuilders and the streets are all named after shipbuilders yeah, and yeah. great magazines you know Huskisson Street. Slavery wasn't it? I mean it slavery. Was all built, it was all built on wealth accumulated through slavery of course you know which is which is the, the truth about the northwest of England's great kind of industrial birth was that it was it was pioneered on the back of cotton coming back from the states and there was this triangle of shipping going from Liverpool to Africa, where they would pick up the slaves, drop the slaves off in America, pick the cotton up, drop the cotton off in Liverpool. And so it's the slave triangle, I think it was called. So, I mean, there's always been sort of myths of, of, of slaves being chained up in Liverpool and stuff like this, which was never true because slaves would never come on that leg of the journey. But if you go to Liverpool's Maritime Museum, there are these most astonishing uh, maps, flat plans of the boats showing how they would cram in the slaves, you know, and it is like... I mean, sardines, sardines have got it good. You know, I mean, they are literally yeah, yeah. like this, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and of course they look like corpses laid out on the deck of a ship, which is in some regards, you know, what, 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 what they were, you know. I, I, I'm, I'm a, uh, in ecclesiastical terms, I'm a canon and my canonry is from Ghana. Uh, so I go to Ghana a little bit. Yeah. And if you go to the Gold Coast in Ghana, there's, a, there's, a, there's this horrendous, they call it a fort, I guess, where the slaves were underneath yeah. and the conditions under which. And I mean, they're so disgusting and so horrendous. But what for me is like doubly horrendous is on top of this 
um, prison underneath. There was a place where they used to have church services. Amazing. So as these people were underneath, Amazing. they could hear them singing hymns and so forth like that. Amazing. And you can think, how, it, how do these people not understand Amazing. the connection between... Well, my, I've got a mate in Liverpool called John Sinclair. And years and years ago, John came back from a holiday in Barbados, I think it was. And he told me a story that I'll never forget. And it was a, he, he said, um, you know, there were parts of Barbados, obviously, that are desperately poor. And he said he walked past the church and he could hear the preacher talking to the black congregation, a black preacher. And, and it was effectively saying, if God didn't want this to be your oh, life, don't tell me that. if God it's, didn't oh. want this for you, God wouldn't have it for you. And I just thought the culpability of sometimes of, of, of the way religion affirms people's trajectory in life is, is frightening. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't have any, there was no religion in your background? Yeah, no, my dad, oh, oh yeah, no, I'm uh, Roman Catholic. Um, my mum was Church of England, <coughs> but in those days, for you to be baptised into the Roman Catholic Church, you had to agree to be a Roman Catholic, so my mum sort of seeded that. And so, yeah, we were brought up Roman Catholic, and I would still describe myself as a Roman Catholic, although I, of late I've struggled with it a little bit in terms of the institution of the church, but not not the not the idea of the church itself at all, which I'm... You know, I think is a holy good thing. Right. You know, even if it's not true, I think it's a holy good right, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the the institution of the Roman Catholic Church itself is starting to bother me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you come to that <laughs> a bit late. I've got, after 49 years, I've finally worked it out. Well, yeah. I was going to say the Reformation yeah. is the first Brexit, but I'm not even going to. I'm not going to come to that. Yeah. <laughs> let's 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 just wait for a minute before we before we argue about that. So. And when you left school, and what did you do when you so left school? I worked to work on the fairground, Southport Fair, um, and I stood there calling people onto the waltzes and various rides and making candy floss and stuff. Um, and I left school with one... I, 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 I had to leave the good school I was in to go because my A-level uh, first year was so appalling that they basically said, look, there's no, he's not going to get anywhere here. But... I went to a uh, technical college in Bootle called Hubert Technical College and had two really good years there, but left with one E in English um, at A-level and failed geography and failed whatever else it was, sociology, whatever. And I only got the E because there was a language component and I plagiarised a short story by Hilaire Belloc, right? Completely. <laughs> and it was a fabulous story about the devil taking somebody over the streets of Paris showing them their real lives you know and, and it was extraordinary but there there's a bit of a clue there I think about what I feel was obvious now looking back uh, that I was reading short stories by Hilaire Belloc and was able to plagiarise them su sufficiently well to get uh, an A-level out of it and yet academically I was absolutely hopeless but my absolute belief is that I've, I've suffered from ADHD all my life, you know, and I just can't, I've never had the capacity for concentration or, yeah. and, and also I have a great capacity for impulsivity, which yeah. turns out to be two short spans of attention and impulsivity are great attributes in some forms yeah, of journalism. Yes, yes. And so, bad in other, in yeah, other, bad yeah, in yeah. other forms of life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think I have a, I think yeah. I have a bit of that as well. So, so since then I've, I've always, I've always had a, a feeling that, uh, you know, I, that I wasn't good enough to go to university, but I, I'm, I'm certainly sure that I am smart enough to go to university. But that that was definitely a factor in in, in feeling a little bit chippy, I think. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah. For a but while. chippy drives you on, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. Chippy yeah, is like yeah. a motor. Totally. Yeah, totally, yeah, yeah. Totally. And so that motor took you into, out of the fairground. Yeah. So out of the fairground, and my mum, uh, 
fixed me up with a week's work experience on the Brutal Times, which was a really good little weekly newspaper that my dad had worked for when he was a kid, you know. And I, I took to it like the proverbial duck to water. Really loved it. Loved being able to go out and getting stories and meeting people and just the endless variety. So the shyness it. is going here if you're going to yes. go out and meet people. Yes, so the sh- as long as I don't have to expect any sort of social real social interaction as long as the, the so if you're going to a party where it's just drinks and canapes yeah, it's like you hate that painful i mean even today i find it an effort but i'm yeah. much much better at it now um but when i was a kid it was it was a real anxiety but if you've me. got a job to do yeah no but... problem at all and also it, the, you're you're in a slight remove as a as a journalist so you know you're in a little bubble as a you're a thing you know you're not just two people talking you're you're a thing and you, and someone is being interviewed and stuff like that so it's a slightly different context and i really i really loved that job and i got uh i went on to work on a paper called the formby times all of these papers sadly shut now you know because of no demand for paid for local papers and i did my what's called my um indentures at the formby times which was effectively an uh, training program that had an official result at the end and at the end of that i passed with flying colors and got a job as a district reporter on the daily post which was the biggest morning newspaper in liverpool and i was such a hopeless district reporter it was in the days of pages right and this was the only way that the news desk could get in touch with you was via your pager and i used to just throw the pager away you know drop it in a bin or something like that you know pretend i'd lost it so that i wouldn't have to be at the end of this brutal news desk, which I'd now look back and they were, of course, kittens. But yeah. so, uh, so, so I was called in. I was called in one day by um, a really good editor of the Daily Post. He was a very nice man. And he said to me, you know, I really think you should think of another career. You know, you're not a journalist. That's what we've established in the last year. You are not a journalist. Um, and for one last throw of the dice, I thought I'll try and apply to be a sub-editor, which is all about laying out designing pages writing headlines and it, importantly it was in the office environment um, and I got a job on the sister paper the Liverpool Echo and found that I loved the idea of producing and designing newspapers you know I just loved the 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 order of it uh, I loved the creativity you could bring to it I was good with words it turned out so I could write good headlines and I and I had a flair for design so that quickly became my route into what ended up as a long career on the Daily Mirror via the Daily Record. In, and your in politics Alaska. at this time, when you were sort of Left, doing that? Yeah, so I would say... Um, <clears throat> I w- it's, hard, it's hard, really. I w- wouldn't say I was ever kind of... I was definitely not a badge-wearing anything, but I was definitely... There was no I, no chance I was anything other than a Labour voter. You know, that was that would have been really heretical, you know, to have deviated from that except i think for the one moment when shirley williams came in with the sdp and she ran for the crosby by-election now i was too young to vote but i there was something about the breakaway nature of the sdp that was quite appealing um but yeah no labor labor through and through which which is a problem these days because i don't particularly feel comfortable with the direction the labor party's going but you're right. badge wearer in chief, though, yeah. uh, of the issue of the day. Yes, I and am. Where, where, so let's just talk, let's talk yeah. about this. So where yeah. did the where did the sort of the Europeanism come from? Even before yeah. the vote, yeah, yeah. before all of that, where's yeah? So it, well, via Ernest Hemingway, right? Really pompously. So I was, we went on holiday. Not a European, not a European, but uh, I would argue a great European in in okay. his in his value sense, and certainly what I loved about the idea of Europeanism, and. 
we were on holiday in a place called Tossa de Mar on the Costa Brava, and there was a little uh, bookshop there, and I would have been about 14 or 15, and there was a, a book by Hemingway called uh, The Dangerous Summer, which was a, one of the last books he wrote, and it's about bullfighting, so it's not a very oh, yeah. uh, politically correct topic these days. But I picked it out, and I've, actually I've still got it, and I, I bought this book, and I just devoured this, the way he wrote. And then I, I read a biography of Hemingway by a guy called Carlos Baker, which was... Which was this? It was the biography that kind of established the myth of Hemingway being this incredible internationalist, larger than life, into all these you know remarkably outdoorsy stuff. You know, the hunting, the big game fishing, fishing. all of this stuff. And and, <clears throat> and of course, Hemingway spent a lot of time in Paris and a lot of time in in Spain. And I used to go over on my own to Paris for a week's holiday when I was on the Daily Post. You know, that's where that's what I'd do. Is I'd do you drop, have other languages? No, 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 nothing. No, I mean a little bit of Spanish because I, I spent a couple of years spending a lot of time in Argentina uh, about five or six years ago working for a paper there. So I picked up a bit of Spanish, but n- no, effectively not. Um, and so I'd, I'd spend a lot of time in Paris, sitting in the Café du Dome, you know, reading the International Herald Tribune as it was then, and and thinking I'm going to be the next Hemingway, and and that kind of. I th- that had a big impact That's on That's a romantic, book. pretty romantic, it, it, so outdoorsy plus intellectual type of yeah, thing. So that that was my, so that was w- what I wanted to be. But I, I look back now and I think it, it was, as it possibly was with Hemingway, it was an actual, it was a real contradiction of what I am or what I was, you know, which isn't a big, robust kind of uh, huge show off, you know, uh, I'm not like that, except I've adopted elements of that because of my desire. So there's to be a romanticism like about Europe quite early yeah, on yeah, through yeah, Hemingway and yeah, things like yeah. that, uh, especially around the, the, the sort of twenties and thirties of of Europe. The idea that people were out there creating stuff in little garrets, you know, and and being true to their artistic intent. People like you know Matisse and and, and, and Picasso, who was a little bit more established by the time he got to Paris, but but certainly the idea that that Europe was a place of free-flowing ideas and creativity was very attractive to me. And and, and, and being able to cross without any boundaries, you know, yeah. which is why I felt so pissed off on June the 24th, 2016. I, I couldn't believe it, you know, and of course... having Did spent, you expect it to go that no, way? No, not at all. Not at all. <clears throat> Total complacence. And the other factor as well is Liverpool is a very cosmopolitan, international, outward-looking city and that confounded me the fact that the northwest of england had voted to remain largely but the northeast of england fairly similar demographics and makeup of people had voted in very strong numbers to to leave uh europe which confused me and still confuses me and i can only think that it's because liverpool had seen the benefits of the european union in a way that they hadn't done in sunderland for instance you know they had the capital of culture program and they had you know you go around lots of places in liverpool and you'll see plaques with the European Union on it. So, yeah, I, I felt absolutely shocked. Um, that, and, not, that, that evening when Sunderland, when Sunderland sort of like... Yeah, you, when that, it came that's, in. It and that's like, the point where everybody wow. goes, oh Uh-oh, my God, this could go wow. the other way. Exactly. And it was and and it was shocking. We'll all remember that sort of David, David Dimbleby moment, you know, where he says, we are out, you know, and it was kind of, wow. And the, and the finality of it is what I felt was so, so shocking. And I was in I was in Shoreditch at the time. The next morning, beautiful day, uh, but everybody very gloomy. And it reminded me the last moment I can remember it being that 
that sort of consensus of emotion was when Diana died. You know, it was kind of like everybody, oh, my God, you know, and everybody talking about the same thing. You didn't have to introduce the topic. You could just go up to somebody and say, can you believe it? And they would say, no, I just can't believe it, you know. And I heard a couple of uh, baristas in this cafe talking about, you know, what do you think it means? Will we be able to stay? I went to buy a this ship. This is central casting. Yeah, no, so, so in terms of, terms of my lever perspective, it's the idea that Matt true. Kelly on the morning is talking to, to baristas in Shoreditch. No, no, no. I wasn't talking to them. He was in the old press cafe in Red Church Street in Shoreditch. Right, and right, these, I two, know. these two, I don't know, Italian or Spanish, they were speaking in yeah, English yeah, anyway. Yeah. And they were like, my God, you know. And then, and I'll reaffirm your stereotype of me, we, I then went to a shirt shop, bought a shirt, and it was an English guy who was saying he had, his wife was from uh, Greece and their plan was to emigrate to Athens and they had no idea whether this was going to be possible and all of this. Now, those conversations weren't really material. I just thought, but it just sort of made me think there is a moment. And, and what occurred to me was that for the first time in a long time, maybe forever, there was this monstrously huge constituency had just been created overnight, the 48%. And nobody knew they were the, one of the 48% or indeed the 52% the day before. But suddenly, yeah. and the thing about the 48% was that they were all angry and confused, you know, and there was a real emotion there. And I, when I say all, obviously, yes, yes, you know, yes, yes, I'm yes. generalising massively, yeah, yeah, but... Yeah, yeah. But they were certainly disappointed. There was a, there's definitely a palpable anger. Yeah, yeah. And, and because I'm a newspaper man, I thought there's a huge opportunity here because no one's speaking this to This on them. the first the This first was day. on the day after. So I emailed my boss, uh, the chief executive of this company that I work for called Archons. And my day job is chief content officer of uh, about 120 newspapers and magazines. And, um, and I emailed him and I said, you know, if ever there was a time for a new newspaper, it's, it's right now because you've got so many people... Uh, they're all bound together by one issue. They're all emotionally charged. And we know where they live because we had the map of, of where the distribution was. And I'd only been in the job six months or so. So I was kind of expecting him to say, nice idea, and, and to bat it into the long grass. Because there'd been, a, a you know, notably, there'd been one newspaper just closed and cost the company nine million quid, you know, for a 10-week experiment. So it wasn't a... A what great, was that? The oh, New that, Day. Do you oh, remember that's the right. I remember Mirror, New Which was a Day. really nice paper, but you know, it, <clears> didn't, right, it just didn't have a market. And yes. and actually, if people ask me what's the difference between the New European and the New Day, apart from the fact that we had no budget and they had massive budgets, I would say that everybody knew whether the New European was meant to be for them, but who knew whether you were a New so, Day reader so, or not? So it was that kind of connection. And anyway, I went back into work on this, so that was on the Friday. Went back into the work on the Tuesday for, for our executive meeting, and I forgot completely about this idea. And we had this very long, depressing meeting about how Brexit was going to be bad for the business. And then at the end of it, my boss said, "You know, has anyone got any positive ideas?" And stared at me. And I remembered this. I said, "Oh yeah, why don't we launch a new newspaper?" And again, expected it to be laughed out of court, but it wasn't. Everybody got the idea. And we agreed to do it on the basis. The CFO was understandably nervous about committing to a to a long term project that could cost us a lot of money. And and the biggest stroke of genius is too much, but the biggest bit of cleverness I had in the whole thing was this idea which popped into my head and I said, We'll call it pop up publishing. We'll only do it for four weeks. And instantly everyone relaxed. So because the what how much how bad could it be over four weeks, you know? And we'd get loads of attention, it would be a great thing for for Argent. 
So we agreed the next day to do it. So this is now four days after the vote. And then we uh, we had a national newspaper on newsstands nationwide the following Friday. I don't know how you did it so quickly. Because newspapers can be done quickly if you know what you're doing, uh, as opposed to websites, which take, ironically, quite a long time. to, to If you want to build a bespoke website, it's quite a, you know, it's a thing. You know, it takes months to do. But to throw out a newspaper, as long as you can design it and you've got the distribution network, it's very, very easy. Uh, I, I'm good at design. I had a great context book from all my time at the mirror so i was able to call on people like jonathan friedland and peter bale and tanit koch and all of these talents to come and write for the first and everyone's issue. looking for something to write because uh, yeah. they're just like pumped and, up about it and everyone was sort of taken with the sort of madness of somebody launching a newspaper so so and that and that in itself got us loads of marketing free marketing you know so andrew neil got us onto the politics show and radio wanted to talk about this crazy project and so we launched it. There was a big argument about whether it should be like cheap or expensive, and I was very keen and clear that it should be expensive. A couple of quid, isn't it? Two, it was. It's two fifty now, but it was two quid to start with. And you know, I thought price isn't going to be the defining factor here. If people care, they'll pay. I wish, to be honest with you, I wish we'd charged a fiver for it now because I think it would have still carried a big audience. Um, put it out into the market. It stays on sale all week, a bit like the New Statesman or the Spectator. So I never find out how it's that that issue sold until two weeks later. But I remember walking down the embankment and the phone ringing, and it was the circulation guy. I was hoping we might have sold ten thousand copies, and we sold forty thousand copies. You know, no marketing, nothing. You know, so suddenly, I was like, "Wow!" But you knew how to get it on the newsstands. Yeah, that was the key thing. And it it was very impactful cover. You know, there was nothing looked quite like it. It was a big sort of big massive cartoon, and the first cartoon. I look back now, and I wouldn't run it now because it was incredibly condescending. It had a picture of two people on a sofa and their pet dog in front of them. And the man saying to the woman, I wonder if dogs think. And there's a massive big thought bubble coming out of the dog's head and the thought bubble saying, these absolute idiots voting to leave a union of <laughs> such greatness, you know, and all of this, dooming the nation to, <laughs> to years of economic consequences, blah, 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 blah. But it was, I mean, we literally called leave as idiots on the first day, which, you know, it was, it, look, it's a cartoon. Yes, yes, yes. No, uh, no. But, but it, it certainly positioned But it was a stay us. angry <clears throat> thing as well, wasn't it? That's there? right. Fight Brexit, stay angry. Stay yeah. angry, fight Brexit. And, and I did feel that um, and I do feel today that the biggest risk from my side, which on my side clearly is that we're making a huge mistake. And the biggest risk to us not being able to get out of that is complacency and boredom, you know, and people just getting bored of it, which I think and you probably agree with this. It would be tragic if that's how something happened just because people were, have just got bored of it. Well, I think I mean, I think my it. side's got bored. With it. Yeah, I think everyone's <laughs> I think bored everyone's of it. I don't blame them, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Um, but you're still angry. I, I still get, I, in fact, I'm more angry now when I see after two and a half years of absolute, so there's two levels of anger. One is I'm angry about the idea that we're leaving this union, which I think is has been a really wholly positive thing. Not wholly, but a very positive thing for, for Britain. But I'm I'm equally as angry at the absolute cack-handedness of this government and the way that they've handled the whole issue. And I'm pretty angry with the, the opposition as well for the way that they've fudged things and and have been unclear uh, and I think have failed failed this concept of representative democracy which we depend on you know we 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 don't live in a a delegatory 
democracy. We live it where people are meant to look after our best interests. And even if you think, you know, re- democracy should be respected and that was the vote and we should see it through because all of those people will feel terribly disenfranchised. And I agree with that, apart from the see it through bit. The, even if you think that, the, the lack of directness and clarity and honesty to the electors, uh, that's what I think is the yeah. great betrayal, yeah. that no one's been straight yeah. with people oh, yeah. right up until the moment do when you, you couldn't do, avoid Can it. I ask you about your, your position on this? Because like, the Hemingway stuff was very illustrative for me and the sort of romanticism about Europe, which yeah. I understand. Yeah. So if it had been the other way around, what I mean is if staying in Europe had cost us a bit, yeah, yes. If actually, if, if there'd have yes. been an economic hit for staying in, say yeah. Europe had collapsed in some particular yeah. way and so yeah. forth, I'm presuming that you would still be a yeah. stayer in, yeah, irrespective would, yeah. of whether yeah. it would be... It depends economic. how much. It depends how much. <clears throat> but um, And I think that, you know, I can see exactly the, the positioning of the question. It's absolutely right. I can see how... It's, to me, it was never about the economy. Yeah, me neither. It was about, and I've written pieces about this, you know, it wasn't about, you know, um, regulating economic regulations or the curvature of bananas, you know. It was about regulating our propensity to kill each other. That was the, that to me was the most important That's the, thing. The peace argument is the, yeah, is the yeah. absolute. Is it, and, and demonstrably, with a couple of notable exceptions, demonstrably Europe has succeeded in that. And uh, now, I think the mistake that people make is to think, that that peace is just a consequence of progress and civilization, and that it's inconceivable that Europe would again fall into warring factions. And I don't, th- I don't think it's inconceivable. I think that you see the rise of, of of people on either end of the political spectrum, and you see tension and conflict that could easily, I think, develop into something. Do much you think more nationalism serious. or patriotism or however? I mean, is, is do you have a sort of do you have a patriotic? Side. Well, I, I mean, well, I, I don't. Th- it's like saying, <clears throat> "Do you think you're good or evil?" I don't think anyone would say, "No, I'm not patriotic." But however, well, I think people might. I mean, really? people might say, "People might say, oh, I think patriotism is a very dangerous thing," yeah. and I, and I sort of like, yeah. you know, I, you know, I'm proud and a bit of my country, but I'm yeah. like, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that that's, that, you know, that's yeah. been a dangerous thing. Yes. Well, so I think so. My, the patriotism I would brand myself with would be one that said that I recognise that Britain is a intrinsic part of this great community of nations and has played an absolute leading role and I'm so proud of that and I, of course like you know looking back to to you know as we were talking earlier you know people like my grandfather who you know sacrificed so much to to help beat the evil out of Europe you know I'm immensely proud of that of course but I do, this idea that a geography is somehow special and distinct just because it's it's that seems to me you know illogical and and dangerous and 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 i also think it's it's vastly overestimated our influence in the world and and in many ways you could look back at the collapse of empire and see brexit as perhaps you know the last washing through of the arrogance of of great britain in terms of our global standing don't don't you think this is sort of (coughs) don't don't you think there's also maybe you just completely disagree with this but um you know, I'm often accused of being a little Englander. One yeah. of the things I think about, and, and in a sense they're right, I am a little Englander, and, and what I mean by that is, like, we're no longer an empire. We're no longer this great sort of thing. We ought to have yeah. a little bit more modesty yeah. yes, about our totally, role in the world. Totally. And that modesty is that actually we are 
we are smaller than yeah. we often think we are. Yeah. And actually that fed into my decision yeah. rather than, you know... Well, I mean, I would agree with you completely. We just reached different conclusions. So, yeah. so my conclusion was that we were much better off being... A, a big seat at the table of the biggest trading block in the world of an of a of an incredibly uh, diverse set of cultures and influences, and, and rather than being uh, this smaller thing on the side of all of that, that's what, in the economic side of things, really concerns me. What well, one of the um, this is never this is almost never talked about when it comes to Brexit. But one of the things for me that uh, that there's a sort of thing that there's a sort of back story that goes on you know these these things that drive you but you never yeah. talk about yeah it's like uh, you know part of my family's jewish my wife is israeli yeah um and um you know there's different responses to the catastrophe of the second world war in one sense the european union is a response to the catastrophe of the second world war. you talked about it in terms of peace mm. and and bringing peace and that and that response is that you know sort of nationalism was the problem and you need to somehow you know, you need to share the sovereignty in all the way in which the... Hmm. Um, my wife's family went to Israel, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And and if you talk about this in Israel, you go to Israel and you talk about this, their nationalism isn't isn't the problem. The, the nation state was actually the lifeboat yes. that, you yes. know, f- for many Jews, the nation state yeah. was the lifeboat, which was the absolute response to the yeah. horrors of the Second yeah. World War. So there's a way of, totally. you know, I mean, and there's all sorts of problems with Israel. I mean, well, totally, you know. But nonetheless, there's a sort of model of, there's a model of the nation state, yeah. which is as a sort of, yeah, as a lifeboat. As a and safe place, as a, a haven. As a, as a, as a, as a safe space yeah. where, yeah. you know, and I, and, I, and I have a sense of that and, and a, a suspicion of, and this is where we differ, but a suspicion of transnational bodies where mm. and for me it's sovereignty as yeah, you know and yeah, we can argue this but yeah. the um where the sort of gap between people and power yeah. just gets too yeah. overextended yeah. and then some you there's an alienation in that which yeah. i think is highly problematic and, yeah you know that's what i felt when i've been in midlands and places like that totally i get it completely um and i i for my part the european union setup is deeply deeply flawed and um you know the idea that we do have effectively an unelected kind of hunter at the top of of Europe with so much influence. I'm so glad to hear you say yeah, no, I think that. It's te- I think it's terrible, but that to me that doesn't negate the value of of the collective. And uh, so I'm very much in the in the idea that you know it's almost doubly bad if Jeremy Corbyn, for instance, really wants to transform this nation and and stay true to the sense of internationalism that I think is at the heart of Labour. You know, the last thing he should be doing is withdrawing from the place where he could have much magnified influence. That's my take on it. He's an old-style lefty like yeah, Ben yeah, yeah, and all yeah, of those yeah, sorts yeah, of things, which had yeah, an influence on yeah. me, which, which sees the European Union as a sort of like, you know, a businessman's club. I yes. guess that's part of his... Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe you made the argument from your side. I think it is, is that sort of talk is all very 1970s, you know, mm. like, you know, capitalism has won the day. Just yeah. get over it and yeah. so forth. Maybe some of us can't, you know. Well, I, I mean, I don't I, I think people get hung up on on definitions of things. You know, people talk about socialism and they talk about capitalism and they talk about Europeanism. And they talk about all sorts of conservatism uh, and I. I'm very I'm a pragmatist I would say and that's where so the biggest label of scorn these days is to call someone a centrist and and I am a centrist you know absolutely unashamedly 
feel that I um, uh, like the economic freedoms of capitalism, but I am deeply wedded to the social good of socialism, you know, and I, and I don't think that there's necessarily a contradiction except for the say that the way that we're taught to think about politics you know and you have to be in one camp or another so that's what and i also hate i know and we are on a website called unheard you know which was explicitly about not getting away from group thought you know and i i think much of politics and much of society and most people are quite comfortable with thinking the way they're told to think and and that if I, if I have one core value in my whole life that I hope I live up to, it's that it's never to take anything at face value and always to challenge the, the, the received wisdoms, yeah. you know, and to kick back against them yeah. occasionally. The received wisdom that it was madness to launch a newspaper, you know, yeah, yeah. bollocks to that. Was, you know. So um, uh, we haven't got a massive amounts of time. Got tons of questions I want to ask you. Sure, so, sure, like, sure. so I'm, I'm still rather taken with uh, David Goodhart's distinction between anywheres and somewheres. Now, this is a distinction I imagine that you might not have that much truck with. Um, so, you know, one of the ways of analysing yeah. what went on yeah. uh, a couple of years ago was this was a sort of, um, you know, those people who don't have a particular loyalty to place. Yeah. They're, they're sort of like they're happy on aeroplanes and in international hotels and they yeah. go around the world and so forth. And those people who are rooted in the specifics of place yeah. and the loyalties of place that, uh, yeah. that that's not how you see not this, at all. It? No. And in fact, I feel so I feel. When I was in Liverpool, on the Liverpool Echo, we used to joke about Scousers in London, you know, bleeding hearts about going on about how great Liverpool was, you know, and the, yes, place, yes, yes. the best place in the world, and, and would never come back. And now I'm one of those people, but I, I still feel deeply wedded to the what I see as, as the place of Liverpool, you know, and, and, and the body of people, you know, I feel emotionally connected to that. But I don't see the contradiction in exporting that in 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 geographically. You know, that's me. That's not the place. That's who I am. And 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 in the same way, I I've, I've, I I don't necessarily agree with that uh, premise because then you look at places like the northeast of England, for instance. Very again, you know, very largely voting to to leave in almost diametrically opposite to the northwest. And that's I don't think that's about the place. I think that's attitudinal that's experience based you know that was their experience and a different take on their experience so the the geographical element of it confounds me a bit if if um, if we have a second referendum and um and you guys win yeah um what is the what is the remain um what is the remain answer yeah. And there may not be one. But why is the remain answer to the sort of anger and left behindness yeah. of yeah. Sunderland and, well, and other places? I think it's a dom- I think it's a domestic challenge, you know, and this is this is my point. I honestly believe and this will be perceived as as condescending, but it's not meant as such. I honestly believe you could have put a vote of anything in front of people that year and they would have voted against it just to be demonstrate that they were truly pissed off with the way that the government had let them down over the last eight years and the lack of infrastructure support and the huge classrooms and the queues at GPs and the state of the roads and everything and and in places the influx of what they saw as a threatening um, uh, immigration that would challenge wages and also would change the, the, the way that their communities felt. I get all of that completely but I think it's a massive failure of domestic politics so I'm trapped in this paradox now where 
I accept completely we have politically squandered two and a half years of the most desperately needed repair time to fix some of these really fundamental problems. And we've squandered it arguing about this bloody thing, Brexit. But to get back to the important things, I feel it's really necessary for us to get out of this thing, which will further damage us and put us into another austerity phase which we we cannot afford we got i'm thinking we're coming out of us we've got worse haven't we than we are i mean this time i mean that we're around more divided more bitter you know it's got it's very nasty it's tragic because you know i can't we we both probably get a lot of stick from people who feel vehemently that we are wrong uh i get called you know treacherous a lot and and a lot worse but i i understand why people say that but there's no pretty end to this situation. There's no scenario, whatever happens, whoever wins, there's no scenario where a huge number of people don't feel very angry right. about what's happened. Right. And the co- when people talk about civil disturbance and stuff like this, I think they're absolutely right too. But I think it'll be, my guess is that if and when there is some civil disturbance, it will be a fury directed towards the leadership of this nation, not towards the leadership of the European Union. The absolute negligence and incompetence that this parliament, and I'll cover both the government and the oppositions, have shown, and and, and a real abrogation of their duty, I think, to tell us the truth. And people will see it for what it has been, two years of of political gamesmanship that is going to cost people's livelihoods. And I don't know how how people like you and I do this... Um, uh, but, you know, whatever happens, and neither of us know how this is going to turn out. No. Neither of us know who's going to win, no. quote unquote. But exactly. it looks very binary. It does look like yeah. winning. Yeah. We, You know, people of goodwill really have a responsibility to find a way of talking to each other past yeah. whatever happens yeah. and so forth. And like we've sat here, we've had a very civil conversation. We're not like... Yeah. Um, and they, these sorts of conversations are actually quite rare, aren't they? I, I mean, across, are, yeah. across a divide, because yeah. we're always point scoring on the yeah. telly or in the newspapers yeah. and so forth like that how we i mean have you got any ideas how we bind up ourselves yeah. i think people should this? spend and i include myself in this a lot less time on twitter and social media oh, I, I really you know you read back marshall McLuhan. you know the medium is the message and he couldn't have been more on the money when it came to twitter and because it's not just about the contraction of of thought it's about the all the characteristics of twitter the need to be there first to say something to have a very strong opinion to get lots of retweets and and acceptance and to be able to to say to pretend that what is hugely sophisticated and complex can be expressed in a couple of sentences and when i see politicians uh really taking the lead on twitter and then you see nine months later those tweets becoming white papers I feel this is this is really dangerous, and Twitter has has fundamentally changed our society. I completely agree with you. I took a month off Twitter, and I got into trouble for my <laughs> because obviously, and you know this, because Twitter is one of the most important yeah. ways for journalists to market to, your journalism. To, to market yeah. your journalism, yeah. so you can't come off Twitter, yeah. and I can't. Come my off wife Twitter, hates and it makes Twitter. Me, me right. and my she, wife hates it. I mean, it. she, I mean, hates it, and yeah, and and she thinks less of me because I'm on Twitter. Same and. And so she has begged me in the past to come off it. And then, so I have done for bits of time, but then GQ, for instance, where I write a column on politics, will come on and say, what the, you know, what the hell are you doing? Get it, get back on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, where yeah. the numbers are. And yeah, yeah. so, again, we are trapped in this. Uh, if you want to have a voice and you want to be have an opinion, you want to engage, that, that's where there's a big community of people. So, 
and how we have how we managed to have civil conversations on Twitter yeah. once that there are people coming in from all sides yeah, yeah. who are calling what for me a racist yeah, or a yeah, whatever yeah. it is and yeah. so forth like that. Yeah. That's because it's very easy to be distracted by that yeah. and end up yeah. get angry and react. Yes, and I think you know, people. I, I can tell you a lot of people who have become depressed because of the response of of people on on Twitter. And my rule now is I never look at the replies. You know, I don't. I look at verified replies. You can segregate things by people who are verified or not. But I'm I'm afraid I don't engage in the in the conversation that a tweet might provoke anymore. Yeah, no, I understand that. Yeah. Well, we have a responsibility. We'll see what happens, Matt. Have you got any guesses? If you went down to Ladbrokes uh, this afternoon, what would you say? I've all I've said now for two years that I that it does it doesn't work, right? Brexit doesn't work, and for a year now, I've said the only logical. Uh, way this ends up given that it doesn't work and they're going to get nothing through parliament and given now that it's become clear which is i think is is great from my side that no deal will not be allowed somehow it won't they'll find a way to stop no deal i just can't see any alternative to passing it back to the people and my view and this is where we'll fundamentally disagree is that that is the essence of democracy is to say Things have changed so much. You should be given the right and if, to if affirm. They say, if, if they say out again... I'll stand by it. You stand by it that... 100%. You stand because by it. Because how can I argue people are now informed and can make a, a much more informed decision and then say the day after, well, bollocks to that, I still don't agree with them. Well, you know, I won't agree with it and I will always carry on arguing for the benefits of, of having a leading role within the continent of Europe. But I'd, I, I would swing by the uh, the leave vote and we would turn it into the new Brexiteer and we would absolutely try and... <laughs> Mate, I'm not going to miss a publishing opportunity like that. <laughs> you, you, you promise me uh, honestly, that if we win, you, you have a, you'll have a newspaper headline that says the new yeah, Brexiteer. We absolutely will. And uh, we will shake we your will. hand on that. <laughs> we'll Matt you. Kelly, that's fantastic. We're going to end on that note. Right. A pleasure to talk to you, You're my welcome. friend. You're pleasure. Welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing. And I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com.